Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hi, I'm Phil Craig. And I'm Andrew Loney. And together we aim to bring you the most scandalous stories and some of the most scandalous people in history. So thanks for joining us here on the Scandalmongers podcast. Well, Phil, something very much in the line of our Post Office Scandals podcast, another terrible scandal which is ongoing, getting a lot of attention in the papers at the moment. Uh, We've got Andy Verity, the BBC's correspondent, talking about the LIBOR scandal. Yeah, a very very good get from you, Andrew. I've I've wanted to talk to Andy for ages, and uh, you're right, it's a bit like the Post Office story anybody who listened to that one except it's a it's like on the global scale isn't it it's amazing yeah yeah and i mean it it, it does point to to in some ways our current theme about how big institutions protect themselves at the price of individuals i mean really shocking what happened to some of the people and the fact that it's taken so long for the case really to be looked at again yeah that's what we're doing this episode we're going to go back to the financial crash of uh, 2007 and 8, and we're going to uh, dig into some of the very shady things that were going on with uh, some of the biggest financial institutions and governments and banks. You're feeling brave, Andrew? Take on that yeah, one. Yes. Our, our lawyers are on speed dial at the moment. <laughs> yes, they are. Sue, and we're run. just putting our houses under the names of our wives. Oh, God, you know, I think maybe we should. But no, Andy's book, I think, has been very carefully legal, and he's an incredibly good reporter. Um, you know, he's an outstanding reporter. So uh, I'm sure when we get to him, we the, uh, listeners and viewers will be impressed. And hopefully yeah, we will be really passionate about the subject. I think it, it's, it'll be a really good session. And I think it's very important that, you know, people like us do publicize these issues. Um, and it fits very much into our theme of the scandal mongers. It does indeed. And actually, before we l- launch into it, you know, I, I love to tell you all of the good news. Uh, the the show we recorded last week is doing really well. We've got like six hundred uh, views just on YouTube in two days, which is pretty good for us. That's great, um, and we're get, we're getting there on subscribers. We just need people to push that button yeah, and get that button. magic one thousand. Yes, I think it's eight hundred and twenty. So we are definitely moving towards our target on YouTube subscriptions. 
and Brittany 818, sorry, Brittany 813 in Florida says, do please keep it up. You always have such interesting guests, five stars. And actually, in the last month, we had 75 ratings and the average of four and a half stars. So we're doing something right. Yeah, we're getting into we're getting into our stride. It's taken us twenty two episodes, but uh, anyway, we're here to stay. We hope. I think we are. I think we are. I think we just we both love it too much, and it's also it's just an amazing privilege to be able to you know talk to people of the quality of of Andy and some of our other guests, and we've got some other big hitters lined up um, who are very happy to give their time because they kind of quite like what we do and want to be part of it. So maybe that's enough boasting. Um, shall we jump back into? Um, Jump back into financial history. Yes, over to Andy. Okay, here we go. Counting down to Andy now. Hello, can you hear me, Jens? I can. Oh, yes. I can. Perfect. Okay, Good. great. Thank you, Pete. I'm, I'm here with the colleague because um, I'm a, a Pete, Pete Page is a camera guy at the at the BBC. Say hello. This is Phil. Uh, and uh, last night. Hello. Good morning. Nice to see you. You too. And th- thanks for the invaluable technical assistance. God, we do need it on this podcast. Oh, Andy's. Just stepped out of his car straight into the dining room and, uh, to join your <laughs> yeah. oh, well, we, are, we are absolutely thrilled to have both of you, but especially <laughs> you, Andy. And, you know, your book, which is, uh, well, wow. I mean, what a story. And you've it's only, what, about a week. I'm sure it'll be a huge bestseller. We're so grateful you're joining us to talk about it. Um, yeah. And, you know, for a couple of old hacks like us, and I'm an old panorama hack myself, it does you so good to see a story like this told well and, and really – Restores your faith in investigative journalism. So on you, mate. Well, thank you very much, Phil. I stand on the shoulders of giants, you know, who who investigated Princess Diana or Lord Mountbatten or the likes of of John Ware and and um, you know John Sweeney and and all these people who I've admired over the years. The, the thing about journalism, as you may know, is you can do a lot of shallow stuff, you mm-hmm. know, um, that doesn't make any difference, and it's just yesterday's chip paper. I've always wanted before I hang up my boots, I'm in my fifties, um, to, to do something that makes a difference. I grew up in Barnet and uh, went to a normal state comprehensive and got interested in journalism in my teens. And when I was about 18 or 19, that's when the Birmingham six happened in the Guildford four. And there was a big drama documentary called who bombed Birmingham. And I really admired the work of people like Chris Mullin and Robert Key, and also a former BBC senior colleague, Ludovic Kennedy, who pioneered this kind of journalism in a way in a book called Ten Rillington Place, which was made into a movie starring Richard Attenborough um, as John Christie. Well, and remember well. Oh, hi, Andrew. Andrew's back. Hi. Sorry about that. So we have, we're, been... uh, Andy's telling us why he was driven to uh, take on the, this, this, this challenge of, of investigative journalism. I should tell you, I'm so old. I worked at World of Action during the Birmingham Six. I didn't work on that show. But I oh. was present. I was present when those men walked free, and it was quite a moment. Well, it's interesting. Soon after, the editor of World in Action was a guy called Nick Hayes, whose son ended up having to apply to the very body which was created as a result of the fuss that World in Action made, the Criminal Cases Review Commission. Amazing. Um, that's Tom Hayes. But yeah, I saw all these miscarriages of justice, and for me, that was always in a way, the pinnacle of journalism, the most you could do as a journalist to try to expose a miscarriage of justice and something might happen about it. And we, I, I feel in writing this book, I'm part of a ghastly tradition, British tradition, stretching back to the early 60s with Ludovic Kennedy writing 10 Rillington Place about how Timothy Evans was wrongly hanged for uh, a murder. And in fact, it had been committed by the serial killer 
John Christie, it led to a posthumous pardon. You had the Birmingham Six and the Guildford Four, both made into movies in the 80s. Chris Mullin was one exposing that. Another was Robert Key. Uh, and and they, they, they fought really hard to expose evidence that something had gone wrong with the courts. Each time the Court of Appeal got it wrong repeatedly. Same applied to the killer of, uh, well, to the murder of Jill Dando. They got the wrong person for that as well, Barry George. There was the murder of Winston Silcott in the mid-80s. Um, sorry, the murder of PC Keith Blakelock, um, for which Winston Silcott was jailed when he was innocent of that murder. And there are so many over the years that were that were reversed, not as a result of the Court of Appeal seeing what had gone wrong, but because journalists had exposed evidence, etc., that showed that the cases were flawed. Now, of course, no one's died here. This is not terrorism. It's not it's not murder, but it is nevertheless 37 people who've been prosecuted on what the US courts now say was a completely misconceived case. Well, take us back to the beginning, because I've, our listeners, indeed ourselves, let's be honest, Andrew, we are quite new to this story. But everybody, I think people are aware, like we did the post office scandal a few weeks mm. ago, they, they know there was a scandal, they know that people were unfairly persecuted, they don't really know the details. So let's go back to the heady days of 1907, 1908, there's a financial crisis looming. 2007, and, I can't go quite back that <laughs> yes. far. Sorry, not going to go quite that far back. <laughs> 2007, and, and the banks... Are trying when to you were on World in Action. Yes, we did. <laughs> so there's a thing called LIBOR, that was important. Just sketch out the basics if you could. Yeah, so let me take you back to 2007 when the credit crunch struck. Do you remember that? People were advertising outside pubs, credit crunch lunch, come in and get cheap eats here. But it was actually something very serious that was going on, the worst financial crisis since the 1930s. And the way that you knew it was serious was the fact that interest rates were out of control. So those official interest rates set by central banks like the Bank of England or the Federal Reserve in the States or the European Central Bank aren't what really determines the cost of your loans. Those repayments on your loans are actually determined by the cost to the banks of getting a hold of cash on the money markets where banks lend to each other and where they get funds. It's that cost that really determines the cost of your loans. And in the normally it moves in lockstep with what central banks do. So the Bank of England raises rates by a percentage point and all the banks raise the rates by the same. But in the credit crunch, because everybody had lost so much money on US mortgages, they were all looking at each other, the banks, thinking, I'm not going to lend to you because I don't know how many billions you've lost. I don't know how many billions I've lost. So I'm going to hoard my cash. And they all became reluctant to lend. And it meant that interest rates rose, even though central banks didn't want them to rise. So that was key. And the, the determinant of that, the way of measuring that was a thing called LIBOR, the London Interbank Offered Rate. It's simple. I promise you it's simple. It's rather like the FTSE 100 tracks the prices of shares. The, the LIBOR tracks the cost of borrowing cash, the interest rates banks are paying to borrow from each other. And it does that by the following means. Every day, 16 banks are asked the question, at what interest rate could you borrow money? A large lump of cash, a few hundred million of dollars, say. Um, they give their answers. So HSBC might say 3.43%. Uh, Royal Bank of Scotland might say 3.45%. And then you take an average of all the 16 answers, and that's LIBOR. Simple as that. Simple average. And that's global. But, that's a global thing, not, not just... It's Britain. a global thing. And commercial loans, everything from loans to, to build wind farms, to commercial mortgages, to residential mortgages, to consumer loans... We're all benchmarked on LIBOR. So you'd have a, a rate of LIBOR plus one, plus two percent, et cetera. Eurobor was similar. It was just the equivalent for euros to track the cost of borrowing euros. And those two benchmarks in the crisis were a measure of the credit crunch, if you like, a barometer. The higher LIBOR rose compared to official interest rates, 
the worse the crisis was. Got it. And 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 this is key because what happened in the crisis when I was presenting a thing called Wake Up to Money early morning Radio Five Live program with my co-host Mickey Clark, rather like you two guys are doing now. We had great fun doing it, but in the middle of the crisis, we had to explain all this stuff at 5.30 in the morning to an audience of traders on the one hand and truckers on the other. And also listening in was a guy called Gordon Brown, who apparently it was his chosen early morning listening when he was the prime minister at 10 Downing Street. So what happened was in the crisis, LIBOR became a, a barometer of how bad it was, or a thermometer, if you like. And when it came to the eye of the crisis, October 2008, uh, Gordon Brown was among those having listened to our show, which was all saying, you know, if you don't get LIBORs down, then you're not doing better. The thermometer of the patient is still rising, uh, was very keen to get LIBORs down. So keen that when he announced £50 billion of recapitalization for the banks, there was disappointment in Downing Street that LIBORs weren't falling farther. And we have evidence that Gordon Brown's chief of staff, Jeremy Hayward, the late Jeremy Hayward, was very concerned that LIBOR wasn't coming down fast enough. But if you're trying to get the temperature of a patient down, do you give it pills to cool its temperature or do you fiddle with a thermometer? And that's the key issue here. Because, I'm, I'm going to guess they went with fiddle, just from the tone of voice. Well, there's an audio recording that we uncovered for BBC Panorama six years ago, um, which was at the centre of the whole crisis. And this is where a guy called Mark Dearlove, who's the boss of a Barclays cash trader called Peter Johnson, says, PJ, you're going to hate this. But we've had some very serious pressure from the UK government and the Bank of England about pushing our LIBORs lower. You can play it into your podcast if you like. I can send the audio recording. We'll tweet it uh, out, definitely. Yeah, yeah. And, and that recording was was actually what led to all the criminal investigations, etc. But it was buried. Parliament was never told about it. Congress was never told about it. But it happened on the 29th of October 2008 when Peter Johnson was instructed by his boss, Mark Dearlove, nephew, by the way, of the former head of MI. Six, Sir Richard Dearlove, famous in the Chilcot Report. Um, uh, the British he, establishment, how we love them. Well, right. And guess who doesn't get prosecuted? Mark Dearlove, giving the instructions. And guess who does get prosecuted? Peter Johnson, the lowly guy under him, who was not only being forced to do something he didn't want to do, something he regarded as fraudulent, under pressure from the UK government and the Bank of England, according wow. to this evidence, but was also later prosecuted for something and different kind of LIBOR manipulation that no one regarded as criminal at the time and that no one apart from the UK now regards as criminal. The Bank of England have told us these are unsubstantiated allegations. The UK government says similar stuff. Um, but actually, the evidence is there. So is this what they called lowballing? Pressure to push this rate down to make the country and the banks look better? Yes. So it started with the banks. Peter Johnson in 2007 saw that all the banks were lying, understating what they were really paying to borrow cash. They were afraid that if they told the truth about how much they were having to pay because a credit crunch was on and everyone was reluctant to lend, then people might get the wrong idea. They might think that they were so desperate for cash that they're having to pay up. So, Phil, if you if you if I thought you were a poor credit risk because I wasn't sure if I lent money to you, I'd get it back. I'd probably charge you a slightly higher interest rate. So charging you a slightly higher interest rate might be a sign that you're a bit of a dodgy risk. You've got a patchy credit record. And so the worry was that if the banks told the truth about how much they were paying, they would look like they had dodgy finances and there'd be speculation. They would get beaten up on the equity markets. Their share price might tumble. And so bosses gave the orders throughout the credit crunch to people like Peter Johnson to keep down within the pack 
The trouble being, the pack was all lying. And Peter Johnson kept on trying to be more honest and put his rate higher than everybody else, closer to where cash was really being borrowed and lent, the interest rates where it was really changing hands. But he kept on being told by his bosses not to. And I came across the audio that shows very clearly that he's being instructed by his bosses to lie. And when I first came across that, I knew that he'd gone to jail and I knew that his bosses hadn't. And then I came across this tape that I just mentioned about the UK government and the Bank of England. So he was ordered by his bosses to lie initially, then the Bank of England, and then the UK government, according to the evidence. And yet he was the one who went to jail. So was it, I mean, they were obviously lying, that's clear. It was clearly dodgy. But was it actually illegal? Was it something beyond the law What was happening? Well, you've hit the nail on the head there, Phil, because there weren't any rules at the time about LIBOR. It wasn't regulated. And when we've gone to the Bank of England and asked them about their instructions, they say it wasn't regulated, at which point the traders, 37 traders who've been prosecuted, nine of whom have been jailed, take a gasp. Okay, you're saying it wasn't regulated. You want that as a nice excuse for the Bank of England. But sorry, we were prosecuted about this, even though it wasn't regulated. The law that, that sent them to jail wasn't created until late 2014, early 2015, ahead of the trial of Tom Hayes. So it applied retrospectively. The the actions indicted took place between about 2005 and 2012. And the law that said it was wrong wasn't created until 2013, 2014. So what they did, rather than prosecute fraud, they couldn't prosecute fraud because they had no evidence that any of the traders they were trying to prosecute had made any false statements in what they were trying to prosecute. So I need to I need to lay this out a bit simpler so so there's no co- uh, there's no confusion. Lowballing was the real problem. That was where banks were clearly understating their rates on instructions from the boards of those banks. But when they came to prosecute it, prosecutors found that inconvenient to pursue, perhaps not least because there was evidence pointing to the top and they didn't want to go there. The US Department of Justice didn't want to prosecute a sovereign institution like the Bank of England or the UK government. And therefore, they came across other evidence of traders making requests of their colleagues. And here, this was just normal commercial pricing, according to the US courts. They they were requesting that their colleagues answer the eyeball question, at what interest rate can you borrow money, with their bank's commercial interests in mind. So when you answer that question, the submitter who puts in the estimate of the cost of borrowing is having a look at the market. He's saying, well, I can see an offer there at 3.43. There's an offer there at 3.42 and another offer at 3.44. There's nothing to choose between them. Which do you choose? Well, I suppose we might choose the one that's in our bank's interests. And so the traders would say, yeah, we've got a position that would benefit from 3.44 rather than 3.42. Could you put that one in, please? And they would do that. But the thing is, it was a range of accurate rates. All of those were correct answers to the LIBOR question, at which rate could you borrow? Whereas with lowballing ordered from the top, it was miles away. Right, it was right. nowhere near where, where the rate where banks were borrowing and lending cash. So whereas in the crisis, the traders were instructed from above to post clearly false rates, that wasn't what ended up being prosecuted. What the United States Department of Justice and the Serious Fraud Office decided to do instead was to go after these requests for rates to be adjusted up or down by just a hundredth of a percentage point or two within a narrow range of accurate rates. 
Now, the thing about this range is it was the devil in the detail that threatened to blow up all the prosecutions. So the prosecutor in the first trial of a trader for rigging rates, Tom Hayes, um, actually resorted to denying the existence of a range. And the traders were saying, but of course there's a range. If you think about it, there's always a range. If if you ask me um, for a price for your house, and I'm an estate agent, and I came back to you and I said, Phil, your house is worth £213,000, uh, 442 and 13 pence. You'd look at me a bit funny, wouldn't you? You'd think, you can't do that. That's 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 not right. You can't price a house to the penny. There's always a range. And so when a, an estate agent who wants your business might say, oh, I think you could do 210,000. And the estate agent who's too busy, doesn't want your business, might say 190 grand. Nothing criminal. There. Yeah, all of this sounds, as you say, like the normal back and forth of business. That's right. So it was, did, was it just because people all hated bankers at this point that they wanted somebody to take the rap? They didn't want to go for the the lowballing charge because it would have taken them to places they didn't want to visit. So they yeah. kind of, as you say, retrospectively invented a crime, fitted these guys up, and are these guys still in prison? Or did, have you and others helped help them get some kind of justice now? Well, no, they've all emerged from prison because they weren't doing time for a terrorist act. They weren't in prison for 30 years. Uh, the longest sentence, though, was 14 years initially for Tom Hayes, which is wow. longer than some people get for killing someone. And he says he was just doing what his bosses told him. In fact, the regulators have accepted that, in which case you might ask, why was he prosecuted rather than his bosses? Um, well, the answer is, you, 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 were, you were hinting at it in your question. This crime and these prosecutions, nine criminal trials on both sides of the Atlantic, didn't happen because a victim complained that they'd been a victim of fraud and there was a careful review of the evidence and the CPS approved the prosecution. No. The serious fraud office had, in fact, in 2011, decided not to prosecute all this. But then in 2012, 27th of June, can you remember the fuss about Bob Diamond? Are you old enough? Back then, um, 2012, there was a huge fuss about Barclays being fined for rigging interest rates. It, was a, it ignited a powder keg of suppressed public anger. In the financial crisis, it caused the worst financial calamity in 80 years. Yeah, It was largely because of the bank's mismanagement. We all had to bail them out to the tune of £66 billion. Pounds, and yet no banker, no senior banker seemed to have been held accountable. The worst was Sir Fred Goodwin becoming ordinary Fred, but keeping his pension. So there was all this suppressed anger. We were entering a double-dip recession. There was talk of a new crisis. And when the regulator, the US regulator said, look, they've done something illegal and we're fining Barclays for it, it touched a nerve. And a story about the Queen meeting the commander of the IRA, the commander of the IRA, Martin McGuinness, and shaking hands with him for the first time was knocked off the top slot on the BBC News by a story about banks because there was so much suppressed public anger. And it went on for a week. It claimed Bob Diamond's scalp. He had to resign as the chief executive of Barclays. As he resigned, though, he put out some evidence, a tease of evidence that suggested that the Bank of England might be implicated in precisely the misconduct that the traders and Barclays had just been fined for. And what then happened was that the MPs held an inquiry and they were told by the Bank of England, no, 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 no. we didn't know anything about lowballing until 2012. Well, I found evidence that they did. Paul Tucker, who gave evidence to MPs, to the effect that he knew nothing about lowballing until 2012, was in fact told about lowballing in 2007. Now, that led to accusations that he misled Parliament. We've asked Paul Tucker about it. He's never responded to our inquiries. I've asked him about a dozen times. Similarly, with the Bank of England, we've said, well, there seems to be evidence that you've misled Parliament. They've said, 
We feel these allegations are unsubstantiated about us manipulating LIBOR and that LIBOR was unregulated at the time. But, you know, I've asked them several times. The Bank of England has said, oh, we're going to go public. We're going to put all our documents out there. I've tried to get freedom of information requests through. And in spite of those promises, they have never made those documents public. Fortunately, I've got hold of them for this book. And that's why the book's so incendiary. It has evidence that suggests that not only was the Bank of England and the UK government involved in manipulating interest rates in the crisis, but they covered it up. They had the evidence of lowballing. They said they didn't know about it at the time. I've got the evidence that suggests that they did. Gosh. And then you have the, the audio evidence that suggests that it went right to the top, to the UK government, not just them, but to central banks, including the ECB, the Bank de France, Bank of Italia, and the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. We asked them all to comment. <clears throat> Guess what? They didn't feel like commenting. So it feels, <clears throat> excuse me, it feels like the story is only halfway through. And you're clearly with your book and all the reporting you've done, you've given it a huge nudge forward. But, you know, what's the next stage? Do you think it will actually end up with governments and national banks and former prime ministers having to account for themselves rather than just standing by while kind of some poor trader gets thrown in prison? Well, I mean, yes, there's two things that have gone wrong here. One is the cover-up and the other is a whole series of miscarriages of justice which followed the cover-up. I know that David Davis MP and also John McDonnell have made common cause over this, and they're both saying that there needs to be a renewed parliamentary inquiry. But for our for listeners who are not British, that's like Donald Trump making friends with Joe Biden. I mean, they, those two men could yeah. not be further apart politically. Very right. left wing, you know, uh, and a hardcore Brexiteer, right Tory. And if they both can see this is an injustice, then it yes. probably is an injustice. Well, and they're both people who care about democracy. Right. The thing is, there's, there's two democratic principles at stake here. One is that Parliament shouldn't be misled, um, and there is strong evidence that it has been. David Davis and John McDonnell, two senior politicians in Britain, want to get it back to our equivalent of a congressional committee. They want to get it back to the Treasury Committee, because back 11 years ago when the Treasury Committee looked into this, they weren't, for example, told about that tape I talked about at the beginning of this podcast, that incendiary tape. The regulators knew about that from 2010. It was the reason the US prosecutors launched their investigation, their criminal investigation. But the people in charge of that investigation kept quiet about that evidence pointing to the Bank of England and the UK government and all the other evidence pointing to other central banks. When they published their final notices, finding Barclays and the other banks, they didn't say anything about it. And the thing is, I can prove they knew about it because Peter Johnson gave an interview where he talked to them about it. And I've got a transcript and you can read extracts of that transcript in Rigged. So I'm hopeful that the strength of the evidence will convince parliamentarians that there is a case for re- reopening an inquiry about the cover-up. And then there's also an effort for of people, senior lawyers and people trying to help the traders to get it back before the courts. Tom Hayes has an application before the Criminal Cases Review Commission set up in the wake of the Guildford Four and Birmingham Six. Um, it's been there for years and he's not confident they'll do the right thing because they initially said no, but now there's more evidence and the US courts have decided the whole case was bunk against the traders, that they didn't actually even break any rules, even though it was the US authorities saying it was illegal that caused the fuss in Parliament in the first place and the prosecutions. Now they've said that the CCRC is under pressure because the UK is the only jurisdiction where this is still regarded as criminal. If they send it back to the courts, that will be a huge moment 
and you'll have been in there at the ground floor. That may happen in the next few weeks. Um, it may go back to the courts. If it does, then there's very powerful arguments that can be made. That the law is illogical, for example. You can go to jail for putting an accurate rate in. They don't, the way the law, the law is so sweeping, it outlaws any commercial influence on putting in your estimate of the cost of borrowing cash for LIBOR. No commercial influence is allowed. The trouble with that being, every time they did this, every day, for the entirety of LIBOR's existence, it was commercially influenced. So the law retrospectively outlaws every submission made every day, along with the trader's behavior, but also the instructions from the top. So the law here is too sweeping, and it's an example of the English common law being used in a retrospective way. The argument the traders have is, listen, it's very simple. If anybody had told us this was wrong, we wouldn't have done it. But our bosses were fine with it. They were encouraging us to do it. So why should it be us? Does the British justice system come out of this well, do you think? Well, insofar as us ordinary citizens can judge judges, and that's why we have open justice, I think I think the judges have a lot of questions to ask themselves. Like, why has the law been applied so selectively? Why have they created this law that condemns traders' conduct when it couldn't be prosecuted under the Fraud Act? Why have people gone to jail when no one's ever proved that they said or did any misleading statements? All it is is like, oh, they made a request, and all the evidence is, oh, they made a request. But now the United States courts have decided those requests did not indicate criminality and weren't, in fact, against any rules, and they've got cogent, powerful reasons for doing so. The lawyers feel and the traders feel that the courts need to correct this because the UK doesn't look good here. The UK is the only jurisdiction where they're outlawing this and the law has been applied selectively. Fundamental democratic principle is that it shouldn't matter who you are. You can be the Bank of England. You can be Downing Street. You can be a, a cash trader on the ground floor. You can be a homeless citizen on the street. It shouldn't make any difference to how the but law it, treats you. But it suggests that the law did treat protected powerful people and took it out on those who couldn't really um, protect themselves. I think that's right. I think those high principles sometimes clash with the structures of power and wealth and that this story is a ghastly story that illustrates how our justice system, supposedly the envy of the world, but not in this story. In this story, according to one of the traders, it's been frightening. It's been for them like a Kafka nightmare. So in this story, if the UK justice system wants to restore its global reputation, it needs to recognise that it's left itself capable of being manipulated by power and wealth. And one of the ways that's happened is the prosecutors simply outsourced their investigation to the bank's lawyers. Now, if you burgled my house, would I put you in charge of dusting for your own fingerprints? <laughs> you know, it's but, a bit like that here. The, the and it's complete to the banks. You know, you, you go away and check check the evidence and then tell us who you think we should prosecute. So, um, Andy, I mean, you've had a lot of pressure put on you and the publishers when people realised this book was coming out, didn't you? I mean, and what, what form did that pressure take? Well... Some of the people, we sent out 34 rights of reply letters, even though we'd already got the legal all clear after making us a satisfied. We sent out 34 rights of reply letters, even though we'd already satisfied the lawyer looking at it, a senior defamation barrister, that we had all the evidence we needed to support what we were saying in the book. We nevertheless sent out, the publishers and I, 34 rights of reply letters to the various parties. Most of them didn't get back to us, but a few did. And yes, there was pressure, as there often is when you're doing a contentious story, 
from defamation lawyers acting from some of the individuals involved who said we were saying unfair things about them. But it's interesting, the real targets of this story aren't necessarily individuals, they're institutions. Institutions are less likely to go to a defamation lawyer. But really, in a way, when it's the institutions who are in the firing line, um, they tend to react in a quite hostile fashion, even though they might not go to a defamation lawyer. So, for example, from the Financial Conduct Authority, which took over from the regulator, it responded to accusations that they'd known about incendiary evidence pointing to the top and they hadn't disclosed it to Parliament by saying that I was peddling a false narrative. But they couldn't support that or substantiate it. Unfortunately, I was able to show show the publishers that was the case and satisfy their lawyers that that was the case. But you know also well yourself, Andrew, as you do feel too, I'm sure, that as Alfred Harmsworth said, the founder of the Daily Mail News is something that annoys someone somewhere. All the rest is advertising. And the other one I like is a is a quote outside the BBC from George Orwell, which says, if liberty means anything at all, it means the right to tell people what they do not want to hear. And when you're going to do that, lawyers will get involved. But you've talked about institutions being at the centre of this, but of course they're also individuals. And the individual, we forget about the human cost. I mean, people lost their careers, they, their marriages broke up. I mean, it was ex- appalling yes. uh, sort of after effects of this. And it's so, Absolutely. It's it's so very similar. The post office scandal, which, you know, another great journalist, Nick, Nick Wallace, has investigated and told us about it a few weeks ago. It's, it seems uncannily similar. I mean, maybe not on such a grand international scale, but the cruelty of focusing on the people who you can get so you can get somebody. And the fact that the, the justice, as you say, is outsourced. In that case, the post office is running like an own private police force. And yes. You're suggesting that something rather similar happened when the banks were said, well, who shall we prosecute chaps? <laughs> yes. Well, there's lots there that we've identified. Yes, it's very similar in terms of anybody who's been prosecuted it destroys their life, whether or not they're guilty. You know, it, 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 it's impossible to find work afterwards. It's it's very difficult. Your social life is difficult because you have to talk about that. It's hard to get away from it. Your personal life is difficult. Your self-esteem is difficult. But when you've been prosecuted for something of which you're wholly innocent, and not only that, but it wasn't actually a crime at all, as far as you're concerned, you're put in this Kafka-esque situation where you're being interrogated by someone who doesn't want to hear your exculpatory explanations. No, everyone was doing it. No, you don't understand. No, 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 we don't want to hear that. We, we, we're just prosecuting this crime that the Americans have decided was a crime. And uh, that was true of the media as well, wasn't it? I mean, until you really came along, the media were running with the narrative that had been given to them. Well, nobody likes yes. bankers. Well, that's right. And so everybody seized upon the opportunity, Phil, to condemn bankers. But they condemned before they understood and they were just satisfied. Good. Some bankers have gone to jail. Great. You know, some dodgy bankers did some dodgy stuff. But the truth is stranger and more ghastly. It wasn't just a few rogues, a few bad apples. The thing that they prosecuted, well, that they were prosecuted for was systemic because everyone was doing it because there was nothing wrong with it, according to the US courts. The thing that wasn't prosecuted was a fraud order from the top, which would meet the criteria for prosecution under the Fraud Act. There's lots of evidence of false statements and lots of evidence of people losing money. There were victims. So they prosecuted something that wasn't a crime and covered up something that was. The human cost of that for people like Philippe Moore Youssef, who's still on the run from British justice, he's a fugitive, having been sentenced in absentia. He didn't turn up to his trial because the judge in his trial refused to hear some countervailing evidence he produced in the Eurobor trial, where they'd found the people who founded Eurobor. 
the people who wrote the code of conduct that was at issue, that was on the indictment, that they breached the code of conduct. The guy who wrote the code of conduct, guess what he said? He gave a witness statement saying, there's nothing wrong with it. They were just doing something commercial, not something criminal. And this is how it is expected to work. The judge in the trial, before he decided the English law on Eurobor, wouldn't allow that evidence into court. And at that point, Philip Moyusa said, right, this is clearly not a fair process. I'm not going to go for the rest of the trial. But he was found guilty in absentia for eight years. And now, if he crosses the border, he could still be arrested. <laughs> Tom Hayes was sentenced to 14 years. And here's another slightly unsettling thing for you. In his trial in 2015, the first trial of a trader for rigging interest rates, Tom Hayes, who has severe Asperger's and found it difficult to communicate and therefore also difficult to conjure the jury's sympathy, if you like. Mm. Um, in the middle of his trial, Mark Carney stood up in the Mansion House and gave a speech at the annual Mansion House banquet where they have a set-piece speech by the government of the Bank of England where he demanded tougher sentences for rogue traders in the middle of Tom Hayes' trial. The next day, there were headlines all over the mail, the Guardian, the Mirror, de demanding you know, tougher sentences for rogue traders. And the defence lawyers were genuinely concerned that the jury might have seen this. The judge in his trial, Jeremy Cook, said he wasn't unduly concerned. This was the same judge who said before Tom's trial that as far as he was concerned, it was guilty on the email evidence alone and that it was an open and shut case. That same judge, encouraged by the Bank of England, gave Tom Hayes a sentence of 14 years. When he appealed... I also detail some of this. I had some inside, inside information on the appeal. They really don't like you knowing what went on in the appeal panel. I can tell you that much. Mm. Um, that the Lord Chief Justice, John Thomas, was there, as was Leveson, as was Dame Elizabeth Gloucester. They were the three on the panel. And one on the panel, I can't say who, wanted the sentence halved. The other was holding out for 14 years, and they ended up settling on 11. Tom Hayes went to jail for his full tariff of half that time, five and a half years. The human cost for him was he got divorced. His wife tried to campaign for him. That shattered him. He didn't see his son. For Peter Johnson, the whistleblower, who was originally trying to blow the whistle on the original lowballing, the real scandal of the crisis, but was prosecuted for something else, which the US courts now say was not criminal at all, he saw, you know, his grandchild, his two-year-old, who is very attached to, he missed two years of her life. Two grandchildren were born and he saw them first in the visiting hall. On Tuesday, we had a, an astonishing session in Parliament for where um, John McDonnell was hosting. David Davis turned up. We had other MPs. And I talked about the book as I have now. I could talk about it. I'm sorry if I've talked too long. It just occupies me, as you can tell. Um, and then after half an hour, I said, well, has anybody in the room been falsely accused of manipulating interest rates. Five people stood up. Then there was an instantaneous round of applause. And that sent chills down my spine. Then Peter Johnson gave his account of his time and what it had meant for him, fighting off the tears. He was just about able to compose himself enough. And at the end of his speech too, the whole room stood up and gave him a standing ovation. That's amazing. And, and there was a lump in everyone's throat. And then Carlo Palumbo, another person in the book, an Italian trader who was 23 when he was told by his bosses to send 12 emails, emails that later jailed him. He said he'd just recently been off license after serving his time in Wandsworth and other places. He was on license and he'd just come, the, the, the probationary regime had just lightened enough for him to go back to see his family in Italy and take his two-year-old girl. He'd been born. He hadn't been there at the birth. He'd had to be on the phone from his cell in Wandsworth <clears throat> rather than being there. He'd gone back to Italy 
with his wife and his daughter to meet his family. But his family, they're Italian, Catholic, conservative. His mother and his aunt couldn't believe that he could have been convicted and could still be innocent, and they wouldn't see him. Oh, gosh. So although they saw his daughter, they wouldn't see their son because they believe he's brought shame on the family. And after the meeting had finished, a wealthy guy came up to me and said, I want to sponsor an Italian translation. Oh, my goodness. Well, I can see why it's such a very personal thing to you, mate. And also, I should say, we are running out of time, but this book, you have to read it because it's not just this international story of skullduggery and unfairness. Andy really does make it personal. As you can see, it really matters to these people. It does really matter. Of course, you've done amazing things. And you talked about shoulders of giants. I know some of those people you mentioned. I did it with John Ware a few weeks ago, in fact. John's an old friend. He would be so proud of what you've done. Um, oh well thank you you should be thrilled i really appreciate that and i I should say you know just for a bit of bbc balance you know although i have got personally can't you can't get into a story like this and not feel emotions about it but we have gone to all of the institutions who've been criticized and asked them for their points of view and we've reflected it in the book and we've reflected it in the audio we've put out so even though you do feel sympathy for the traders you maintain your journalistic integrity your impartiality what's not impartial is listening only to the prosecutor's side of the story and not talking to the defendants. So is the policy basically just to say nothing and, and hope the problem will go away? Um, or the do you think of, they, the policy of some of these institutions, that they haven't got an answer and therefore they're not engaging with you? I mean, there's been very little reaction, has there, to the book? I mean, the Times serialised it. But, I mean, in terms of, of responses from... Um, some of the people involved in the institutions. There's been a sort of deadly silence, hasn't there? Well, that's right. In terms of their responses to our right of reply letters, yes, the institutions have been silent. There's been very little reaction from them. But there has been quite a big reaction from MPs and the media who are now seeing this story the right way around. So instead of it just being about a bunch of rogue traders down the ranks who went rogue and did something dodgy, they're now realising that something much more unsettling, much worse has gone on here involving a cover-up at the top, at state level, of something that was seriously wrong and a whole series of miscarriages of justice where people have been wrongly prosecuted for doing nothing wrong. And that story, so long as that story is... I think we're talking here about the strength of the story, really, Andrew, isn't it? In your pursuits, your journalistic pursuits, ultimately the truth is stronger than whatever story... Um, the financial or political establishment would prefer to put out. So long as you can get hold of the evidence, you can show that. Well, a very common refrain of Andrew and this podcast, and a good place to leave it, I think, because we are aware of the ticking clock, which Andrew can't see, but I can. (laughs) Andy, what what a fantastic interview. Thank you for sharing so much of yourself and your work with us, and very, very good luck. And good luck, absolutely. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening to the Scandalmongers podcast. This has been a podcast world production. You can get in contact with our show by emailing team at podcastworld.org, placing Scandalmongers in the heading, or via our social media links within the show's bio. Need new glasses or want a fresh new style? Warby Parker has you covered. 
Glasses start at just 95 bucks, including anti-reflective, scratch-resistant prescription lenses that block 100% of UV rays. Every frame's designed in-house, with a huge selection of styles for every face shape. And with Warby Parker's free home try-on program, you can order five pairs to try at home for free. Shipping is free both ways, too. Go to warbyparker.com slash covered to try five pairs of frames at home for free. Warbyparker.com slash covered. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait, is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com